This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Penny Pennington is the head of investment giant Ed Jones. Technically, her title is managing partner. She is the sixth such partner in the 98-year-old firm. And the first one not to be part of the founding family. She was uh, originally a financial advisor who just came up through the ranks. If you are at all interested in things like asset management, financial planning, what it's like to run a giant firm with 50,000 employees and 17,000 financial advisors, who better than Penny Pennington? This is really just an absolutely fascinating conversation. There's a little bit of it that's kind of inside baseball, and and I'll let you guys in on a secret. I I treat these conversations as if it's a one-on-one and I just ask the questions that I'm genuinely interested in. I learned a lot, and I think you will too. So with no further ado, my conversation with Edward Jones, Penny Pennington. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Penny Pennington. She is the managing partner of Edward Jones, a 98-year-old Fortune 500 company, they have 7 million clients and about $1.3 trillion in assets, managed by 49,000 associates. She is the first non-family member to manage the firm, and she was ranked number 33 in Fortune's Most Powerful Women in Business list. Penny Pennington, welcome to Masters in Business. Thank you, Barry. It's great to be with you. Great to be with your listeners today. Really nice having you. You have both an interesting background and an interesting career path, but I'm going to jump a little bit towards the end. Tell us what was going on 0809. What was happening in the firm? How did you respond? How did clients react to suddenly, you know, lots of people were poo-pooing the, oh, it's no big deal. It's contained until it wasn't. Tell us what the great financial crisis was like. What were clients calling and and worrying about? And then how does this version compare? It seemed people sort of learned their lesson not to panic in 08, 09. Uh, That that seems to be what at least the lesson was in 2020. But what was your experience? Yeah. Well, um, as it relates to clients and what they were experiencing, if you go back to 08, 09, um, the, um, the catalyst for the ignition switch for that market volatility, what happened in the global markets was a financial ignition switch. It was a meltdown in certain aspects of the financial markets. And as a result, the stock market, as we certainly remember, um, did a deep dive and remained uh, deep and volatile uh, for some period of time, while the financial markets um, were, uh, to some degree, rebuilt. Regulation was a part of that. Um, new entrants and new uh, new partnerships among financial services companies were part of that. But the investing public um, got a uh, got got um, a uh, a reminder of what significant volatility and a deep um, uh, reduction in the stock market felt like. And uh, it took 10 years to rebuild from that. 
The difference with the, the, the effects of what I've called a triple pandemic um, over the past eight months or so is that the ignition switch had nothing to do with the economy or the financial markets. It was a health crisis. That was the ignition switch for a period of market volatility that was actually pretty short in February and March. We have had some more recent market volatility, and we expect that that will continue. But the markets, because for for a lot of reasons that we could talk about, the markets actually recovered pretty significantly. However, the anxiety in the marketplace is still there, and anxiety for investors sometimes means um, that they question uh, the way their portfolios are built. Um, They become more risk-averse, and um, very importantly, they turn to a financial advisor to help them make sense of all of that. So that was a common feature of 0809 for, uh, for investors and how they responded. The common feature for us and our financial advisors and how we respond uh, is to keep people focused on their long-term goals and help relieve as much as we can um, the anxiety that people are facing uh, with market volatility, but this time with things like health crisis, loss of jobs, their kids and grandkids who are going through uh, through significant changes in their lives. So sometimes I ask questions that I just want to know the answer to. Hey, how do you create a consistent experience from advisor to advisor, even if they're in different offices? The portfolios might look similar, but how do you maintain that corporate culture? It's a really challenging question because it's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, especially during working from home. Our financial advisors and our branch office administrators, our client service professionals, they have been in the branch the whole time. Um, Our branches are very safe, and we close them to the public. So we've been meeting with clients, investors, and prospects by Zoom and virtual means. Um, But the financial advisors are in our branches, and that really has helped. It's been a centering mechanism for them uh, and a way that's, that's kept us all together. So that raises a really interesting question, which I was going to ask later, but let me ask now. Edward Jones has something like 13,000 branches. Is that right? They were all... 15,000 branches. 15,000. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking at old data. So all 15,000 branches were open and actually operating lights on during during the entire um, 2020, during work from home during pandemic lockdowns, it wasn't open to the public, but you had people going into those offices and turning on the lights. Absolutely. Most of our branches, we have two to three people in the branch. So they are, by their nature, safe places. We could distance, our our colleagues could be distanced from each other. and we were deemed an essential services. So because of that, even during state-by-state lockdown, and boy, I remember the night that we got the news that Pennsylvania was locking down, that was the first state, you know, just just a wave of emotion and uh, a bit of, oh my gosh, this is really happening and this is going to happen across the entire country. 
And so we got set up very quickly within a matter of hours and days uh, to ensure that our branches could remain open, but also to ensure that our financial advisors and our BOAs, branch office administrator, the client service professional in each of our branches could work remotely if they needed to or wanted to. So within a matter of about 10 days, we went from 15,000 remote connections available across our firm to 50,000 remote connections. So while every single one of our branches has remained open, our colleagues can work flexibly and through through all kinds of virtual means like Zoom and Skype and WebEx with, with clients, investors, and prospects and with each other. So what do you think the impact of keeping 15,000 branches open has been? And let's talk about all of your essential communities. What do you think it's been on the local community, the employees, the clients, and, and any prospective clients of seeing the lights on? Yeah. Um, well, I believe, and I've got evidence that proves um, that uh, that our clients and our prospective clients have seen those lights on and recognized that we are purpose-driven to be there for their well-being. You know, what, what has been going on with clients and investors, the anxiety that, that this pandemic, the economic downturn, and the social unrest have caused across our communities, that anxiety has impacted clients and investors. It's also impacted every single one of us who serves them. And so we've been going through the same things that they have, but what being in the branch is what being on the job at work for their benefit for their well-being has meant to us is that we're doing something bigger than ourselves despite our own personal anxiety all of us have had to deal with all kinds of disruptions in our own lives but we get out of bed every morning thinking about our clients and helping them reduce the anxiety in their lives i'll tell you a real quick story um, and, and, it's, and it really is an image. It was sent to, sent to me um, back the beginning of April from a branch in Florida where the, the branches were closed to the public, but our financial advisors and BOAs are in the branch. And the image that was sent to me was a client standing outside the branch with their hand pressed up against the window of the branch and one of our Edward Jones colleagues on the other side of that window, hand to hand with their client, just passing back and forth, good energy, thank you for being there, we know you're there for us. And words didn't have to have to go back and forth. Papers didn't have to go back and forth. That that was not the ethos that was being expressed. It was this. Uh, it, it was a convergence of love, of taking care of each other, of being in it together, um, of knowing why we're here, and that is to relieve the anxiety of our clients and keep them focused on the long term. It sounds as if there are certain key values and mm. certain key ideas you want to make sure every Edward Jones customer experiences, or, or am I putting words in your mouth? Should I, is it more variable from office to office, advisor to advisor? 
Yeah, uh, I, I like the way that you said that. Um, the experience they have um, may be different in terms of the products, the services, the tools um, that they are exposed to or that they're utilizing. The, what is common is the outcome um, that they achieve financially whatever it is that's most important to them and that they have the, have this sense of well-being as, uh, as we are helping them achieve that. So you raised an, a number of interesting points that I, I want to unpack one by one. Let's start with why you believe this particular cycle was so tight. Why was the downturn in February and March six weeks as opposed to 0809 where it was 18 months which by itself was relatively short mm -hmm. yeah well in large part it has to do with what the ignition switch was um the the economy um before the the pandemic was fundamentally quite strong a period of low interest rates a period of very high employment, uh, a, a, a period that fundamentally um, was very healthy for the economy. Lots of people working, and in our country, lots of people spending money. And since two-thirds of our economy is driven by consumer spending and demand, when people spend money, um, stocks are doing well, and, uh, and the, the market is fairly sanguine. That was the environment that we had um, before the pandemic. The environment that we had in 08, 09, uh, we discovered, was a little more fragile in terms of the, the fundamentals of the economy as well as the fundamentals of the financial services industry um, that caused a ripple. When, when it began to come apart, caused a ripple effect that we know now is global. So that really is the, the, the distinguishing difference. Now, um, why, um, why we had relatively little volatility then uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we do have to look at the, the broad stock market indexes and realize that a few growth companies uh, have performed exceedingly well, in large part because of the way that they have served the consuming public and businesses during the pandemic. Um, I think the five or six um, highest growth stocks are up, you know, 40% over the past six months or so, and the rest of the S&P 500 is up far less and in some, and, and, and on some weeks is down. So it's a pretty narrow uh, market that is driving those, uh, those, those broad benchmarks. So a lot of moving parts with how the contraction came about, how the economy recovered, what sectors are doing well. But I want to focus on what you brought up earlier. You have over 17,000 financial advisors. How do you make sure everybody has the same client experience, whether it's portfolio management or customer service? How do you translate that army of advisors into one, I don't want to call it uniform, but a consistent experience, a consistent interaction with Edward Jones, no matter where your office is, where your advisor is. Yeah. Um, 
uh, what what a what a great conversation that we can have about that. So um, we have nineteen and a half thousand financial advisors. We we're the largest firm in terms of number of financial advisors in our industry. Those financial advisors are um, spread across the United States and in Canada. We have forty nine thousand colleagues all together. Um, so we are all pulling in the same direction in terms of what drives us, Barry. The, our purpose, the, what gets us up in the morning is making a meaningful difference in the lives of the clients that we serve, the 7 million that we serve today and the, the tens of millions of more that that look like serious long-term individual investors that we would like to serve. Now, you said, how do we ensure that every client is having the same experience? Well, actually, we don't because we, uh, we really focus on the humanity of each of our clients and discovering what it is that's most important to them, tailoring the experience to what they need, um, providing to them as completely as we can a, an experience that improves their financial well-being, thereby their entire well-being. And the experiences that uh, that, that is rooted in, the, the emotions that, uh, that those experiences are rooted in, is a common factor in terms of what we're seeking to deliver. We know that our clients want to feel understood about what's most important important to them, informed about how to achieve that financially uh, and how they're progressing toward that in control. They want to feel like they've got some agency, albeit no one's got control over the market, but some, some control and agency in their own lives. And we know when they feel those things that there's a sense of security and confidence about their long-term path. So the experiences that we seek to deliver, family by family, individual by individual, are all focused on helping individual clients and investors feel those emotions, and, and how that's achieved is through a, a deep, trusted, personal relationship with a financial advisor. We don't have call centers. Uh, we have financial advisors uh, in, in communities working face-to-face, one-on-one with clients and their families. Huh, quite interesting. So Penny, let's talk a little bit about financial advisors. What what makes for a good financial advisor? And is that something that can be taught or is it, you know, you either are or aren't? What makes for a good financial advisor is someone uh, who um, recognizes that what we do is a balance of EQ emotional quotient, emotional intelligence, and IQ. So knowledge that can be learned, expertise around the financial markets, around building a portfolio, around balancing complex trade-offs um, between, uh, b- uh, among a, a client's goals. That's the EQ part of, of what we do, and there is, boy, there's lifelong learning associated with, with the, I'm sorry, with the IQ part, with the intelligence quotient. There is lifelong learning associated with that, and um, Barry, your organization um, helps financial advisors and, and folks in the financial marketplace with that lifelong learning and insight and perspective. 
The EQ part is now more than ever and will continue to be a hallmark of what really great financial advisors do. The EQ part is um, being empathetic, recognizing that listening to another human being about what their hopes are, about what their fears are, and how those are changing over time, how they're impacted, especially now by current events, really uh, generously listening um, to that on the part of another human being. And um, with, with, uh, with, with that kind of empathy and with that sort of expertise, building a, not only a plan, um, a, a financial plan, but building a, a plan based on relationship uh, to keep people focused on their long-term goals, notwithstanding the, the short-term ups and downs that are part of that, um, to keep people focused on the long-term. So empathy, generous listening, um, the, the process of, uh, of, of thinking uh, short-term to long-term, all of those things make for, uh, make for the strength of a financial advisor. And back to my earlier point about the IQ part of this, a lifelong learner, someone who is really interested in, in continuing to dial up their own skills uh, from an expertise standpoint, but also from, uh, from, from an empathy and EQ standpoint. So let's stick with the concept of um, advisors. You guys are coming up on your 100th birthday, not too far off in the future. You began as a brokerage firm, and in the early days, most of your employees who were client-facing were brokers. How has, over the past century, how has that changed to what Edward Jones is today? Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating history, and it's really one that's rooted in um, recognizing what was scarce in the marketplace, and boldly, and sometimes, of, uh, uh, admittedly, in a um, in a very uh, unusual way, going after serving that underserved market. So back in the the fifties and sixties, when Ted Jones, our founder's son, recognized that the brokerage companies were all uh, congregated in the large cities, but there was uh, there were significant numbers of people with wealth and uh, with, with businesses and jobs where they were creating wealth who really deserved access to financial information, to products and services, to the ability to open an account and do a transaction in the financial markets uh, in a really seamless and person-to-person way. Ted Jones recognized that that was scarce. It was scarce in more rural communities, and so he went about building a distribution system uh, that spoke to, to those clients. Now, fast forward to today, you know, as I say, opening an account and doing a transaction was scarce then, it certainly is not today. That's not what's scarce, and that is not what, what is, uh, is the definition of value today. In fact, the ability to do a transaction in the financial markets is nearly a free good today um, with zero commissions on trading and that sort of thing. Today, what is scarce is that hyper-personalized, human-centered uh, relationship for 
tens of millions of people whereby uh, they can get good advice in achieving what's most important to them. And that is across the arc of generations as well as across the arc of complexity of needs. And so we don't have account minimums and we don't have account maximums. Um, We work with clients who are serious, long-term individual investors. That means um, they value relationships. They want advice, and they're focused on the long-term in their lives. Quite interesting. You followed Jim Weddle, who was the managing partner at Ed Jones for 13 years. He oversaw a giant rise in both clients and assets. Edward Jones is now one of the nation's biggest wealth management company. Those are some pretty big shoes to fill. Yes, they are, and I feel it every day. If uh, if you were in my office uh, and on the floor where um, where a number of our offices are, there there's some paintings down the hall, and there are five paintings of our former managing partners, our five former managing partners, including two whose last names were Jones, uh, then Doug Hill, John Bachman, Jim Weddle, and um, right across the the hallway from those. those those paintings is a picture of Ted Jones, um, who was our founder's son, our second managing partner. And it's a picture of Ted with his horse and a couple of dogs out on his farm. And he's talking um, about what he loves and what he's grateful for. And those those uh, those paintings and that picture of Ted remind me every day that I'm in the office of what our roots are, what our values are, who we came from. Importantly, all of our former managing partners were financial advisors. They sat with clients, building trust with clients, albeit all the way back to 1922. There's a lot that's wow. changed about that, but what's fundamentally the same is building trust with clients. And as you said, um, my immediate um, predecessor, Jim Weddle, um, was the leader of tremendous growth and growth and impact in our firm that took us from uh, a few thousand financial advisors to today um, 19,000 financial advisors in every nook and cranny, every large city and suburb in North America, in, uh, in Canada and the United wow. States. So following in those footsteps is is an incredible responsibility, a great opportunity, because what I learned from studying those former managing partners, they all looked forward boldly to the needs of millions of investors who we weren't serving yet uh, and took some some pretty distinctive steps in order to serve them differentially. And and perhaps we'll uh, we'll talk about some of that as we we go along today. Uh, That is definitely on my list to get to. Did you get to work directly with Weddle? Did you pick up anything from him? Oh, you well, picked up tons from him. So I was uh, part of the management committee and executive committee while Jim was managing partner. Interesting story. Uh, I was a financial advisor in Michigan from 2000 to 2006. Uh, Jim was the managing partner who came in in 2006 and that year invited me to become a general partner in our firm and move to St. Louis. 
uh, into home office leadership. And so I had a ringside seat um, to Jim's tenure as managing partner, how he made decisions, how he thought about opportunity. I also had a ringside seat to, uh, to our leadership team working through the Great Recession and uh, the impacts of 2008-2009 on clients, on our industry, and on our firm. And boy, so, it taught me a lot um, about uh, about decision making during crisis. And I've uh, while we haven't had a playbook for what has occurred over the last eight months, I have drawn on those experiences uh, to know how to move forward. So, full disclosure, we're recording this a few days after the election, but before the outcome is announced. So we have an inkling as to what might happen, but we really don't know for sure what the outcome is going to be. But let me ask you a, a couple of questions sort of in that, in that area. In my office, before the election, that's all any client asked. What's going to happen? What does this mean for my portfolio? What does it mean for my taxes? Da on and on down the road. What, what sort of questions have you been getting from clients uh, about the election? Is it an issue they care about or is it, you know, just another element that occasionally comes up? Oh, sure. Our, our experience has been the same as yours, Barry. You, you know, we've, we've been around for 98 years. So through the, uh, the, the change of many, many, many administrations during that period of time. And fundamentally, what's, uh, what's the same about those conversations is clients wondering um, what, uh, what a potential change in, in policy might mean for them, just as you describe. What we know over the long term is that very broadly, while White House policies are going to help shape the economic terrain, History shows that the broader path has been pretty similar. Why is that? Um, because the nature of the U.S. economy, because it is broad-based, it is diversified, uh, it relies on consumer spending and business investment, and while White House policy is going to affect those things, it doesn't dramatically swing those things one direction or another every four years. So again, we keep focused on the long term, recognizing that um, that that policies may change um, with a, a new president. Policies may change uh, if we if we continue with the, the president that we've had for the past four years. Who knows what's going to happen in the in the coming days and weeks? Um, what we do expect is that the economy will continue to rebound. We have begun a rebound. Uh, we are not post pandemic. I'm not saying that, but we have begun a rebound in the economy, and we believe that that's going to continue. We do believe that uh, we're not going to see a, a rapid snapback in 2021 to where the economy was pre-pandemic. We do believe that we're going to see more fiscal stimulus. We'll see the size or or, uh, or um, focus of that, depending on the administration. And then finally, uh, we, we know that um, that monetary policy will continue to be exceptionally accommodative. That means interest rates are going to be very low for quite some, some time. The Federal Reserve has, uh, has not only telegraphed that, they've been very explicit about that. Hmm, quite interesting. One of the changes we did see with this administration 
was the possibility of the fiduciary rule being more aggressively imposed on things like qualified accounts, 401ks, and anything like that. If there is a change in administration, what are your thoughts as to what might change? What are your thoughts on the fiduciary rule generally? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, broadly, what I would say, Barry, is that um, retirement security and helping investors have an experience that is that is more helpful to them is a nonpartisan topic. It is one where we have seen uh, a great deal of reaching across the aisles in the past couple of administrations. So we welcome an environment where uh, we are partnering with our regulators and policymakers to help Americans have more retirement security and so access to retirement savings vehicles. Um, Regulation that, that helps clients uh, have more confidence that our industry is operating in their best interest. Uh, all of those things in one way or another have been been dialed up over the past two administrations. Uh, I, I think that will continue to be a hallmark of the investing public's experience. There are different ways to get to that, and there are uh, different types of regulations, um, some much more specific, some much more prudential or principle-based in nature, Um, but I have no doubt that our policymakers, legislators, and regulators are going to continue to be focused there. Huh, quite quite interesting. I know you've been pretty involved in trying to recruit a greater degree of diversity in in the workforce at Edward Jones. I am the median financial advisor. I'm a white guy in my 50s, that's the vast majority of the industry. What should we in the industry be doing to try and bring about more gender diversity, more people of color, just making less of of what's been dominating the industry, bringing a little diversity of thought and, and, and a little bit of change? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I think we've got to ask, why is that important to do? <laughs> uh, let, let me share with you what our statistics are. Our, the average age of our financial advisors is 45 years old. 21% of our financial advisors are women, a couple of percentage points higher than uh, on average in our industry, and about 9% of our financial advisors are people of color. Uh, again, maybe a point or so higher than, than the average in the industry. But the, the reason that I share that is really to say that um, two things. We, we have been focused on this and on a path toward greater diversity for, uh, for a couple of decades. Um, we are not where we want to be. There is so much more opportunity. And so that gets to the question of why is this important? Well, this is important because it is critical for the investing public to have choices about who 
who they are advised by, and to have a sense that the companies that, that they are doing business with reflect the environment around them, reflect who they are, that, that investors and clients also have a sense of belonging, belonging at that firm with that group of financial advisors. Now, I am not saying that if you're a woman investor, you always want to be served by a woman financial advisor. Or if you're a, a, a black investor or client, that you want a, a black financial advisor or a white financial advisor. What my point is that um, that you have a choice, uh, that you look at the face, literally, of the organization that you are working with and say, you know, that that place is, is open to all, um, is eager to serve a, a diversified marketplace, and our, the marketplace is becoming more and more diversified, less homogenous every single day. Um, and so that's the big why, why, why diversity is such a, such a driver for our industry. And just as you said, uh, our industry for too long has been uh, more homogenous in its makeup. And um, that, that it, will, it will do us good. It is doing us good uh, by looking at the marketplace we serve and reflecting the, the needs and desires of that marketplace. So let's talk about a couple of more recent investing themes that have come along. Obviously, robo-advisors were a big thing. They made a big splash pretty much around the financial crisis era, and they've expanded pretty rapidly over the past decade. What are your thoughts on automated investing and those sort of software-driven advisors? Yeah. Well, you, you know, you could go back to 19, in the 1990s and look at online trading and the advent of online trading during that period of time as kind of the first robo-advisor. It wasn't exactly an advisor per se, but it was the ability um, to trade online. It goes back to Ted Jones saying, you know, what, what is, um, where is the underserved market or what is the new innovation in the marketplace? And online trading came about. Um, it has proliferated, and now, um, you know, through various robo advisors, includes more advice associated with that trading because that's what investors are demanding. Uh, as I mm -hmm. said earlier, the trade itself. Uh, executing a trade in the marketplace is, is nearly a free good, uh, and there's much more value to be delivered in providing advice. So the robo-advisor, as a way to do that, we know um, is appropriate for some investors. We believe that 15% of the marketplace is uh, appropriately self-advised. And so robo-advisors, uh, those that, that have very little human interaction associated with them are, uh, are appropriate for some clients. Um, where, uh, where that begins to break down is when markets are sanguine, when things are, seem easy, and when goals are straightforward in terms of the trade-offs between and among goals, it's a little bit easier to take a hands-off approach or to have that done in a, in a mechanical way. 
It's when markets become volatile, which happens unexpectedly, when folks are uh, are dealing with emotional and complex trade-offs among things like, you know, how, how do I save for for college for my child or grandchild and have a comfortable retirement at the same time. That, that's not just a mathematical equation. Actually, it's a very emotional conversation about where, where values go, um, about what those trade-offs are going to mean to a particular individual or a family. And that's where humanity uh, is really important in terms of how we interact between financial advisor and client. Huh, really interesting. So the 90s, we had all that crazy online trading. You, you mentioned the transition to practically free. The modern era, we have apps like Robinhood, which supposedly... Millennials and other young people really are liking and engaging in a lot of active day trading, given that everybody's bored and stuck at home. Um, what do you do when you have a client who is enthusiastically swinging cash around because they're bored? How, how do you manage that from, from the perspective of, hey, everything we've talked about is long term, but, but you're in and out of stocks every other day. Let's isn't that a risky behavior? How do you as the long-term advisor manage that? Yeah. Well, we go back to um, to what a serious long-term individual investor is. That's someone who values advice, who appreciates relationship, and who has a long-term orientation. The valuing advice is where that's going to come in is um, is sharing with clients and investors that beating the market, um, trading in a rapid way in order to time the market or time particular investment sectors um, is is not a not a particularly a good way to build wealth reliably over time. That can be proven. Uh, and in fact, here, here's, here's part of that proof. Clients who are advised by financial advisors, on average, have 25% more assets than those who are not advised. And financial advisors share this kind of uh, investment philosophy with clients. Diversification is important. You can't beat and time the market on a, on a daily or weekly basis. And you need to be focused on the long term, putting money away, investing wisely in high-quality investments, albeit rotating them and reallocating them as markets change. So, um, you, know, you know, Barry, you, you probably have had this experience. Um, you have to say that over and over and over again. That is part of the relationship and is part of the goodness of having a financial advisor is that as a, as a client, you are going to hear that advice again and again and again. Take the emotion out of it, stick to quality and to the long term. Huh, quite interesting. So we were talking earlier about Robinhood and, and people trading at home. Most of the data I've seen about what happens when a client passes away and the next generation inherits the wealth is that they tend not to stick with the existing advisor. How do you manage that? What should advisors be doing so that when there is a generational wealth transfer, 
the next generation sticks with the company or the advisor they're working with. We have to be relevant to the next generation. We have to have built a relationship with them where mom and dad or grandma and grandpa have a particular set of values, um, a particular set of goals, a particular type of portfolio that um, we know from working with multiple generations of clients that what that generation, what that, that grandmother, grandfather, mother, father, are really interested in is passing on their values to their children and their grandchildren. Now, those values can pass through that wealth, um, but but it's it's more than that, isn't it? it it's uh, it, it's recognizing what that family desires to accomplish together and what that next generation is motivated by. And frankly, uh, the, the, the millennials, the Gen Xers are motivated differently than their parents and their grandparents. And the, the, the goodness of the human relationship, financial advisor to client and prospective client, is it's the financial advisor's job to understand that, to find out what's important to that next generation, what their values are, what motivates them, and um, to help form a bridge between the values of the, of the previous generation and the next generation. There's some really important things happening, uh, and this, this typically happens, actually, it's through research, you can show it, happens with the next generation, quote-unquote, when there has been a significant and traumatic event in the marketplace, in the economy, uh, in society. And there's a significant impact on the risk appetite of of generations, younger folks whose whose points of view of, about the world and society are being formed in in that crucible. Um, their risk appetite is affected. Their trust in institutions is affected, and their reflection on what's going to be important to them and going to be driving them for the rest of their life uh, is affected. You know, the the the, the really classic one is folks who grew up during the Great Depression and our parents and grandparents sure. who who we know and, and can can see from them how they live the rest of their lives based on those experiences. Uh, that That's really the one that many people point to, but people who are coming of age during the Great Recession and people who are, uh, who are being impacted today during their working lives, this is going to have a lasting impact on them. And so uh, as financial advisors, recognizing that, digging deep into that with the next generation uh, is going to help us help them be better investors uh, and prepare for a very long life, uh, probably much longer than their parents or grandparents had. Quite interesting. Whenever we see surveys of millennials, there is a very enthusiastic embrace of ESG investing or impact investing or socially responsible investing. I'm not so sure I've seen the dollar flows match that investing enthusiasm just yet, but it certainly seems like it's a trend that's developing a work in progress. What are your thoughts on environmental, uh, social, and government's investing, ESG investing, is this something that's going to have a lasting impact or the jury's still out? Yeah, uh, it's such a rich 
uh, topic of conversation and one that there's so much focus on in our industry and with investors right now. And fundamentally, what we're talking about is having our investment portfolios reflect our values as as individuals, whatever those may be, um, but lining up our our portfolios with our values. Um, I think... uh, Individuals, consumers are doing this broadly, aren't we? I mean, you, you, you read a lot and see a lot, and maybe it's your own personal experience that uh, you're buying today according to your values. Uh, research says that um, consumers are focused on brands that they see as being helpful during this pandemic, um, where they see uh, local helpfulness, where they see um, organizations that are are trying to be part of solutions, that that is driving consumers to buy differently. So you can expect that that's going to happen in the investment markets as well. When when you talk about ESG investing, I do do want to note that sound investing has always focused on companies and management teams that were uh, that were focused on the durability of their firms that were focused on um, on a wide array of stakeholders because if you don't do that as a company uh, you're probably not going to be around for a long long time and so there are new labels that are put on it ESG green investing all kinds of things um, that label this this type of fundamental orientation to multiple stakeholders stakeholders and to the long term. But it is, I believe, Barry, to your point, it is uh, going to become an ever greater uh, point of emphasis for, uh, for younger generations uh, as, they, as they grow into their investing lives. You mentioned earlier uh, that we're in a low-yield environment and probably lower for longer. What does that do to people who are looking for income from yeah. bonds? What does that mean for the traditional 60-40 portfolio? Yeah. Um, well, it, it, what it means is that a bond that you, uh, that you bought uh, a decade ago in a very different interest rate environment uh, was yielding to you a, a higher rate of income. And very classically, the 60-40 portfolio um, enabled you to live off of that income from that fixed income differently a few years ago than you would be able to today. And so while the split of the portfolio may still be 70-30 or 60-40, and I don't want to get hung up on that split, those rules of thumb can sometimes be dangerous, the point is that fixed income and stocks, equities, and bonds um, form the basis of a diversified portfolio. And nobody has repealed the, uh, the, the, the fact that where you invest in non-correlated assets, you are likelier to have a smoother ride during a volatile market. And so fixed income or bonds and equities or stocks in the right measure for your risk appetite and your time horizon continues to be very important. However, living off the income of those bonds uh, is going to be a little more challenging than it was several years ago. Diversification remains very, very important. Now, the flip side of a low interest 
interest rate environment is that a low interest rate environment generally correlates with a fundamentally strong stock market. Uh, and and we, we've seen that over the past 10 years. Um, so don't, don't, don't despair completely. Uh, in a low interest rate environment, there's some countervailing benefits to that, that kind of environment. So let's talk about some other non-correlated assets. What do you think about alternatives such as private equity or venture capital? Well, it's getting a lot of press these days um, because there is a significant portion, a, a more significant portion of uh, of businesses and capital formation that is happening outside of the public market and public companies. Um, for the vitality of our economy, for the different ways that capital can be created and companies can be formed and scaled and grown, I think that that's a very healthy thing. Um, what I think we have to be really thoughtful about as long-term investors is that the public market affords a kind of transparency into companies and access to, uh, to those companies and owning shares in those companies that results in liquidity, that results in ways to verify the, the financials of those companies, that all results in a kind of transparency and reliability that is a really important part of capitalism and about the public nature of our stock markets. So flip that over and say that venture capital and private equity, um, while a really important part of capital formation in our economy, when when an investor uh, gets all whipped up about returns that they see or read about or hear about in those markets, they have to recognize that that comes with a trade-off, a trade-off of risk, a trade-off of less transparency, different kinds of risks, uh, illiquidity, uh, different kind of, of risks than they see in the public markets. And so everything in moderation um, and recognizing that broad diversification, asset allocation across a number of asset classes is what has reliably grown wealth over time. So I know the data I'm about to reference is old, but l- let me... Uh... Let me play with it a little bit and tell me how far off I am. Your revenue has more than doubled from $3.5 billion to over $7.5 billion not too long ago. It raises the question, what sort of practice areas are there left uh, for you to expand into? Where is the room for growth at Edward Jones? Yeah. We talk about growth, Barry, in terms of growth of impact. The impact that we want to have is driven by our purpose. Our purpose is to make a meaningful difference in the lives of more people in North America. And the the part of the marketplace that we serve are serious, long-term individual investors. Um, and, and I've said a couple of times what that means is folks who value relationship, who want advice, and who have a long-term orientation. Today, we work with about 7 million clients. Our research shows that there are 40 million 
investors in North America who look like serious long-term individual investors. Now, they are across multiple generations, across various demographics, and spread all over North America. So our addressable market is uh, is significantly larger than the, the, the marketplace that we serve today. So we believe our opportunity remains rooted in what makes us unique, the human-centeredness of what we do and the locality of what we do. And so we intend to, to continue to focus there, focus on, uh, on the, the relationship that we have with clients, focus on a, a kind of smart consistency in serving them, but also the ability to hyper-personalize to them. That takes greater technology. It takes, frankly, um, being more relevant to younger generations because it really suits our purpose to make a meaningful difference in more lives. If we get emerging investors started as serious long-term investors, if we get them started toward their goals sooner, frankly, they're going to live a whole lot longer than their parents or grandparents. They've got to build up uh, more investment over time in order to achieve what's most important to them. So let's talk a little bit about practice areas. I know you guys do financial planning as well as asset management. Do you also have other practice areas like trust and estates, tax planning, insurance, anything along those lines? Yeah, you bet. So um, our financial advisors are licensed uh, in a number of different areas. We are dually registered as a firm, so we are a brokerage firm as well as having investment advisory fee-based platforms uh, to help our clients uh, achieve their asset management goals over time. Uh, We are also licensed in insurance, so we help our clients protect their goals um, against all kinds of things that that might happen. You know, the the worst thing in the world is to build a really solid plan, um, planning on everything going right, and then having things go wrong unexpectedly. So things like long-term care needs. Um, You know, this is an area, Barry, where where people are becoming more attuned to the fact that they are going to need significant investment to pay for their health needs and potential long-term care needs later or maybe even earlier in life, as well as life insurance. And so we represent uh, and and help our clients protect their goals as well. Um, we have we have products and services that are tax efficient um, that help our clients manage in that kind of situation. Um, We also help our clients with charitable planning. Um, This is something that that really aligns with with folks' values, with their goals, with the the values that they want to pass on to the next generation is their charitable mindedness. And so we help our clients with that as well. And then we work with uh, with a significant number of businesses and business owners. So helping them with their employee retirement plans, their 401ks, their simple SEP IRAs, all the different ways that they can support their employees for their retirement planning. Uh, We do that for businesses and business owners. Hmm, Quite interesting. Before I get to my favorite questions that I ask all my guests, let me uh, throw a curveball at you. Dancing with the Stars? What was was that? (laughs) 
Oh, Barry, you've been doing too much research. I think that's on the third page of my uh, of, of the internet search. So uh, there's no have, hiding from Google. <laughs> yeah, we have a local organization, a tremendous organization called the Independent Center, and they provide um, they provide support services, full lifestyle support services for adults with mental illness. Uh, and they surround those people with, uh, with with the services they need to live lives of meaning and well-being. Well, they also have one of the most uh, unusual fundraisers every year, and that's called Dancing with the St. Louis Stars. And so um, executives and, and community leaders here in town agree to work with a, a professional dancer, get eight lessons, and then do that dance in front of 700 people. And so I did that a few years ago. I learned how to tango, and uh, I tell you, it was. I, I, I have a mantra: do something every day that that terrifies you just a little bit. Well, I had my dose the day that I did that. Uh, but the point was uh, was not the dancing; it was it was raising support for that incredible organization. Quite amusing. All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions. We we ask these of all of our guests, and and let's start with the first one. What are you watching and streaming these days? What what's keeping you busy under lockdown? Either Netflix or Amazon or or any podcast you're watching. Tell us what's entertaining you uh, during this era. Yeah, well, uh, it's a little bit different than Netflix or podcast, but it but it's art. I I I love and appreciate in particular contemporary art, and what I find is that uh, as I study and watch all kinds of uh, virtual tours of museums all over the world, which has been a real silver lining of, of the lockdown. I haven't gone, been able to go see it in person, but, but digitally I'm able to experience all kinds of different art and artists. And what's inspiring to me about that is them making sense of the world during times of tumult, during times of high anxiety, and getting that out and putting it on canvas or in performance or in music um, is a is another way to think about um, how to serve, how to relieve anxiety, uh, and 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 how to make sense of the world around us. You know, my wife teaches art, and I've been dragged to museums all around the world. And one of the documentaries we streamed not too long ago was on Mark Rothko. And if you're if you like contemporary art, that's I'm going to make that recommendation because it was pretty fascinating discussion of how his art evolved into what it eventually became. Yes, thank you for that suggestion. He's one of my favorites. Yeah, me too. And it wasn't 20 years ago. I sort of did a 180 on Rothko, and I have no explanation for why, other than I hit a certain age and suddenly, oh, that's not just a splotch of color. That's a lot of really interesting things going on. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe she shepherded me along. Let's talk about your mentors. Tell us about the folks who helped shape your career. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the folks who helped shape my life most fundamentally are my parents. Um, my father, who was an executive at a publicly traded firm in Nashville, um, who started in, on the factory floor, quite literally, and uh, retired as the CEO of that organization. So the daddy-daughter CEO thing is uh, is kind of a fun story, but 
um, but but more importantly, the way that he thought about business, about leadership, about integrity and trustworthiness in the business world, about relationship building, shaped me. Uh, my mother was an executive with Tennessee Valley Authority, and she uh, was an executive during a time and in a place that there weren't quite there weren't quite as many women as there were men. And so watching her operate um, and learn and, uh, and put up with stuff uh, during that time across a, a, a very long career was, uh, was, was inspiring and instructive to me. Um, in business, uh, as, as part of my journey at Edward Jones, we have a very widely dispersed um, leadership structure in each of our regions across North America. And so my regional leaders, those who showed me the way as a new financial advisor, um, talked to me about values, uh, about service, um, they they were very inspiring to me, and then then my predecessors as um, as managing partners here. I, I'm a student of them. Some of them I I know and worked with directly. Others of I never met. Mr. Jones Sr. and Ted Jones, the founders of our firm. I am the first managing partner who never met them. So becoming a student of their values, of their strategy about how they thought about uh, being differentiated in the marketplace. Um, those have all, uh, have all taught me great lessons. Very interesting. Let's go to everybody's favorite question. Books, tell us what you're reading now and perhaps give us a few titles of some of your favorite books. Yeah. Uh, so I'm reading a book called um, uh, Agile Transformation Without Chaos. It focuses on uh, the, the way that companies are organized to create better experiences for consumers and clients, organized in an agile way to meet the marketplace uh, more quickly uh, and in a more experimental way. So I, I'm reading that. I have several art books stacked up on my table, and I'm reading a book by David Brooks. It's a new book. It's a, it's a compilation of interviews that he had done uh, over time with some of the world's leading um, thinkers, community builders, leaders. Uh, and so just getting their quick interviews and, and getting a window into those folks. I read one of those interviews a night is, uh, is really inspiring as well. Very interesting. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who was interested in a career in finance? Very broadly, the advice that I give to everyone as they think about their career is, is, is ensure that what you're doing is lined up with your own personal and professional why. I, I say, what are you really doing when you're doing what you're doing every day? I'll say that again. What are you really doing when you're doing what you're doing every day? What does it ladder up to in terms of the mark that you want to make on the world? Not, not the position that you want to have or the, the role that you want to attain or the income that you desire to have over time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the mark that you want to leave on the world. And so whatever you're doing, if it is in financial services, um, really reflect on how it ladders up to, uh, to the person that you want to be and the mark that you want to leave. I will say um, very important 
enthusiastically that the financial markets, financial services, makes a meaningful and positive difference in the world. On our country, it can have a much more influential impact on society, on communities, on human beings and society. And I think that financial services is very much focused there today. And so the advice that I would give uh, to, to those recent college graduates is look at this industry as one um, that has and will continue to be uh, very meaningful in our country and in society, that it can uh, intersect with who you are as a person. It is not all math and numbers. Uh, that's a common misconception about the financial services industry. There are certainly parts of it that are, um, but there's a vast part of this industry um, that that is that is all about making connection with human beings and understanding uh, what they value and helping them achieve that. And our final question: What do you know about the world of financial services today that you wish you knew 25 or so years ago when you were first starting out? Well, what I probably didn't appreciate um, as I was first starting out uh, was how intersected the financial services industry and world is with the trajectory of history, um, the history of our economy, the history of formation of communities and society, um, the, the, the history of achievement by individuals, families, and businesses. And so charting the course of history, being really having a front row seat to, you know, when I started in 1985 at a bank, 1987 and the, the market meltdown there, um, the technology res uh, evolution, revolution uh, in the 1990s, um, the Great Recession that we had talked about earlier, uh, and currently what we're facing in our economy. Um, I'm a student of history, and so just having a front row seat to how the, how the economy, financial industry, and society intersect uh, has been fascinating. And I, and I, I guess when I'm in my armchair, uh, after all of this is over and look back on it, um, I'll, I'll, I'll really be able to see something about the arc of history um, from, a, from a ground level view. Thanks, Penny, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Penny Pennington, managing partner at investment giant Ed Jones. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out all of the hundreds of previous such conversations we've had. You can find them at iTunes and pretty much wherever you usually find your podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review at Apple iTunes. You can check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Sign up for our daily reads at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Nick Falco is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer slash booker. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>